Thanks, Caleb. I don't know, if you were at Adventure Week a few weeks ago, you might recognize Caleb. He is one of the Pop Rockets, um, our Adventure Week band. But I've been grateful these last couple of Sundays, Caleb's been coming over and leading worship here, even though uh, La Mirada is his uh, primary campus. But Jesse and Caleb, uh, have uh, Jesse Haugen, who leads here, he's kind of my right hand, and, and Caleb Grossman have been in Israel now for a few weeks. And maybe even tonight we might give a little report on how things are going for them over there. But in his absence, uh, Caleb's been filling in. Really thankful for it. Thank you, Caleb. Um, I also really like that song that, that we've uh, recently been learning at Grace. And, and to, to sing that right before we open God's word is such a good prayer to say to God, okay, to you my heart is open, is acknowledging God's authority um, that, that he, as the author and creator of everything, has the right uh, for his word to interrogate our life and not for it to be the other way around where we interrogate God. And, um, and, and that's what we're about to do. We're going to open God's word. We're going to learn from one little scene uh, in Jesus' life and this encounter uh, that he has with some, some, some men who were clearly not saying to you, God, our hearts are open. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully the Lord will, will teach us here. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one to follow along. We're not just making this stuff up. Uh, we, we don't think Justin Garrels. This is, this is new. We, it's like the Vanna White of Bibles showing. If you'd like a Bible, it's a lovely ESV. It's paper bound. It's got a very small type, unfortunately. So you have to have good eyes to read our pew Bible. But if you need one, um, just throw your hand up and we'll get you one. And you can even take it home with you if you don't have a Bible. So anybody, before we move on, want, want one? Okay. Well, then, in the Bible that you have, if you would turn to Mark chapter 11, that would be great. Second book of the New Testament, there's these four books that we call Gospels that are accounts of the life and the ministry and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and this one is told by Mark, who uh, was um, not one of the disciples, but who uh, was close with Peter, who was one of the disciples. And probably most of what Mark has here uh, is handed to him from Peter uh, and for us to, to know something about this Jesus and what he was like, what he taught and said. And we're going to look at one little section today. It's Mark chapter 11. Verses 27 through 33. Mark 11, verses 27 through 33. Um, and I just want you to notice, probably, unless you have a really odd English translation of the Bible, each of these little sections gives a, a section a little title, right? Does your Bible have titles over the kind of the major sections? If you have an NIV Bible or an NASB, a New American Standard Bible or a King James Bible, uh, what is the title that you have over your, this paragraph? The Jesus, Je, what is it? Say it again. Jesus enters Jerusalem. Oh, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Uh, oh, is that back in uh, Mark, verse? Mark 11, right? Yeah, Mark 11. Oh, go, let's go down to verse 27. So in that chapter 11. Question about Jesus' authority. Yeah, question about Jesus' authority. Or maybe it says Jesus' authority questioned. Um, and it, it, this is going to start off with a question. Some men are going to come up and interrupt Jesus, and they have a question for him. But as we're going to see, it's not an honest question. They're not really looking for an answer. They're not looking to learn. They're not open to what Jesus says. Uh, in fact, uh, it's a loaded question. Uh, they're really not interested in learning. Um, it's very different from a lot of the questions so far in the Gospel of Mark other people have asked as they've encountered Jesus, right? Um, a lot of people have come away from hearing Jesus teach and seeing what Jesus did and asked questions. Who is this that teaches with this kind of authority? Um, who is this that commands demons? Um, and they flee. Who is this that, that actually says he can forgive sins and then follows that up by demonstrating his authority to do so by healing um, lifelong disability and incurable disease? And, and who is this that, that the winds and the waves obey him? This isn't an honest question in here. So Jesus' authority is going to get questioned, but it's not really an honest question. Um, if you have an ESV Bible, your heading probably says the authority of Jesus challenged, which is probably um, a better uh, description of what's going on here. These men come up and they are at odds with Jesus and they are challenging him. But, but even still, at the end of this scene, they don't prove to be any challenge to Jesus. They kind of slink away um, at the end of this scene. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. They end up with egg on their face. Um, I want to suggest maybe even a stronger word here. I think this little scene is, is more than just about Jesus' authority being challenged, but it's Jesus' authority being rejected. That's what this little scene is about. Jesus claims in both his word 
and demonstrates in what he does, his, these signs and wonders uh, performed through him, that he has divine authority. That's been very clear. And the main characters in this scene are the spiritual leaders in Israel, as we're going to see, chief priests and scribes and elders. Um, and this scene is really sort of like, it occurred to me just yesterday, that this is like their confession to the same uh, question that Jesus asked Peter back in chapter 8. Remember, Jesus had this, this final moment with Peter where he says, Jesus, I know what everyone else uh, is saying about me, but Peter, who do you say I am? And, and Peter has this moment where he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. Well, this little scene right here is kind of like the, the spiritual leaders of Israel answer to the same question, who do you say that I am? And their question to Jesus up front kind of tips their hand, but I think their answer uh, or lack of answer when Jesus turns the question on them really is what's most telling and says this is about a, a rejecting of Jesus' authority. It's denying it refusing it and saying, you will not have authority over me as far as I'm concerned. So what I wanted to say right up front as we start in this little scene is to acknowledge that if we divide this room up based on the question of Jesus' authority, we're, I don't want to assume that we're all in the same place just because we're here on a Sunday morning. This question of Jesus' authority, does he bear in himself divine authority? Is he God in flesh as the Bible presents him? divides us. Some of you, maybe many of you here, acknowledge you're here because you acknowledge Jesus has that authority, that Jesus is God. He is Lord and Christ. He is Savior. He's worthy of worship when people in the Gospels are bowing down before him, that he is worthy of that, that that's not blasphemy, that he shouldn't tell people, get up off your feet, I'm just a man. You acknowledge that he's uh, worthy of your trust and the, of your fullest obedience. But maybe some of you at this point don't acknowledge that. Maybe you are decidedly in your mind saying, no, I don't, I don't agree that Jesus has that authority. Maybe you would agree he's a good moral teacher. Maybe he says some things that make you say amen. But maybe there's some things that Jesus says that makes you say, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. I don't want that to be true. Maybe there's some things in the Gospels that Jesus has done that we've seen that you're intrigued by, but others that you're like, no way. And so you don't just come to this passage assuming, oh yeah, Jesus is God. He has this authority. Maybe you're decidedly against or maybe undecided and saying, I just don't know. Maybe some of the things that Jesus says intrudes upon uh, some sacred areas of your life things that you don't want Jesus to have an opinion about. That's certainly true of these men that come up to Jesus in this scene. So I want to say at the beginning, if you are undecided or decidedly against, at least in your mind, that Jesus is not an authority, or at least that um, you don't ascribe, like we sing, glory and honor and, and majesty to him, um, that my prayer is that what we just sang, that God would shine his light um, what does it say? Shine his light so that you cannot hide from him. We believe, I believe that the Holy Spirit does that. He uses his word as, as, as Jesus is presented to us through his word. The Holy Spirit helps us recognize this isn't just a man. This is, this is God in flesh and praying that God would shine his light in such a way that you would see this uh, and you couldn't hide from that this morning. And, uh, and for those of you who are decided and you say, yes, Jesus is authority over my life, like I would say, my prayer is the Holy Spirit would graciously show us the large gap between us saying that in word and our lives modeling that uh, in, in deed uh, and, and attitude and action. Because for all of us, coming to Christ does not mean that suddenly we say to God, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, and it's true, right? So that's my prayer. So let me stop and pray and then we're going to work our way through this little scene together. Uh, Holy Spirit, I, I ask that you would do what you say in your word that you do. Um, your word says that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of, of unbelievers to keep us from seeing 
the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus to keep us from seeing and agreeing and saying amen to the the fact that Jesus is Lord and author uh, and creator and savior and king. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what you say you do. You speak into that darkness, let there be light, and you give us eyes to see it and acknowledge it, agree with it, and, and be grateful for it. Lord, I pray for each one here that we would not leave this room this morning like the men in this scene leave Jesus. Um, just further entrenched uh, in our, our resistance and rebellion, but, but like the song, that, that we would leave here again saying, Lord, to you our hearts are open. To Jesus uh, our hearts are open. Help us get there, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to do this a little bit differently. A lot of times I'm an organized, outline kind of person. I want to give it to you all up front, and then we'll work our way through. Uh, but this is such a simple little scene. I just want us to work through verse by verse, kind of play by play in this, in this, uh, this challenge, this confrontation with Jesus. And then at the end, I want us to talk about two, oh, I'll, I'll do the talking primarily, but uh, <laughs> two really sobering truths about rejecting Jesus' authority uh, is where I want to land. There's two, this scene really is about these men who confront Jesus. Jesus and what we see about rejecting authority in them. And we need to hear it. It's sobering. So two things about that. So let's just work through the passage, starting in verse 27. And they, Jesus and the disciples, they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Okay, so let's, let's get this scene established. They're in Jerusalem. That's the city. That's the capital. That's the center of the nation of Israel. That's where the temple is. Um, that's, that's the heart of the nation of Israel. Um, that's where uh, sacrifices are made at the temple to atone for sin. That's where people are drawn, where God has had at one time uh, caused his presence to dwell uniquely um, in the center of Israel. That's where they are. They're actually at the temple here uh, in Jerusalem. And Mark's gospel has been telling us all along that that's been Jesus' uh, trajectory, is starting in around chapter eight, he started telling the disciples, we are headed to Jerusalem. We are headed to the center. We're headed to the capital. We're headed up to the, 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 the heart of the nation of Israel. And what I'm gonna do there is I'm gonna suffer and die and rise again. But notice two of the times he's told his disciples that, he also mentioned who will be instrumental in bringing this out. So Mark eight thirty one. He says to his disciples, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So part of what must happen is that he must be rejected by the very leaders of Israel, his people. Chapter 11, 33, he said it again. We're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. God's own people will hand God's Messiah over to the authorities to be killed. Thank you so much, Jan. See, that's why I want, we want Bibles in your hands. I could have been lying to you right there. And I'm, <laughs> I wasn't. I just had the wrong verse. Chapter 10, verse 33. Thank you so much. I'll make a note of that for second service. So twice he's said that, that part of this whole deal is his own people are going to hand him over to be killed uh, and crucified and die. So here they are in Jerusalem, and it says they're in Jerusalem again. Why? If you were here last Sunday, they're there again because when was the last time they were there? See, I'm not going to do all the talking. The day before, that's right. So they had come into Jerusalem, and the day before, they'd come into the city, and they'd come right into the temple, and they had, had, had done some things. Jesus, particularly, had done some things that weren't very popular with these men. They had come into the court of the Gentiles, this outer court of the temple, where even non-Jews could enter in and approach and, and, and give worship to the, God, the one true God of Israel. And he got angry, right? If you remember the scene, he comes in, and there's all this commerce set up this obstacle to the worship of non-Jews, buying and selling and money changing and and selling sacrifices and maybe even profiting on that. And Jesus comes in with indignation, godly anger, and he starts flipping tables over and spilling money and kicking chairs over. And it says he he stopped everyone from carrying anything in this area. That's that's pretty wild. He's running around saying, put that down, stop that. And he brings everything to a grinding halt And then, as I'm sure it got quiet (laughs) at some point, 
he calls out the, the spiritual leaders, the priests and the scribes and the experts in the law and the elders and the overseers, the shepherds, and he calls them all out publicly and he says, you have taken God's temple, which was designed to be a place that the nations could come and pray, and you've done the opposite. You've made an obstacle. And so what does he do? The most unmessiah-like thing these leaders would have expected. Rather than kicking all the Gentiles out and overthrowing Rome right then and restoring this all here to, to to Israel, he comes in and he boots out all the money changers and he opens the way back up for Gentiles. And it says that the scribes and the elders and the chief priests hear about this and they are ticked off. And they gather together and it says they are seeking a way to kill Jesus. And I think that it says they're seeking a way because they can't just, they don't have the authority to just burst right in and just put Jesus to death. That's not their final call. They operate their leadership under Rome. But they're also seeking a way, they're seeking a, a way to kill Jesus that won't end up having bad fallout for themselves. They don't just want to walk up in broad daylight. In fact, they're going to end up arresting him at night in a sneaky, quiet way because they're really afraid of the people. Mark has told us. They're afraid of Jesus and his popularity with the people. So they're seeking a way that they can get Jesus rubbed out, but at the same time, not um, look bad in front of all the people. So they're seeking a way. And so here comes Jesus, verse 27, the very next day, right back to the scene of the crime. And he and his disciples are walking through the temple again. And in Luke's gospel, he says they weren't just back to sightsee and to pray silently, but that Jesus, it says, was, let me get this right, so the, <laughs> he was teaching the people and preaching the gospel, Luke says. So that's what he's doing as he's walking again through the temple area. All these people coming in to offer sacrifices and to pray. And here comes Jesus with the 12 and probably a large following teaching and preaching the gospel right where he ticked off all the leaders the day before. And as he is doing this, the principal shows up, right? He is teaching, and the chief priests, scribes, and elders, they came to him. So can you picture it, right? Lots of people are trying to listen to what Jesus is saying. It's a loud, noisy place. They're all huddled around him. And all of a sudden, at some point, the crowd probably started to part. And this group of men, all dressed fancy, everyone knows who they are. They're in charge here. They force their way through the front and they interrupt what Jesus is doing. And they come up to Jesus and they confront him. It probably got really quiet all of a sudden. These people probably all knew what had happened the day before. And it's like, uh-oh. And they walk up to Jesus, interrupt him. And verse 28, here's the bait. It's not just a question, it's bait. And they said to him, in front of everybody, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? Two questions, it's really the same question. What gives you the right to do what you just did yesterday and say what you just said? Who do you think you are to stand over us like that? You don't even, you're not even a professionally trained teacher. You're a self-proclaimed rabbi. Who are you to come in here and do what you just did? By what authority? And it's a trap. They're trolling Jesus, I think. Here's the sneaky way they're thinking. Well, we haven't been able to eliminate Jesus by discrediting him and convincing all the people he's nobody. He's from Nazareth. Ignore him. That hasn't worked. So now what they're trying to do, I think, is to make Jesus so obviously a threat that even Rome agrees he's got to go. And so here they are in this public place asking him a question that, that they're hoping will potentially be seen as a threat to the authorities, that he's trying to claim something and be something. And so they say, by what authority do you come right here into the capital, into our place of worship, and act like you just act? When they ask the question, they're not expecting, if Jesus says, well, by my own authority or by God's authority, they're, they're not going to say, oh, okay, great, rebuke taken, right? They're, they're, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to say something uh, to get him in hot water. They need Rome's approval to put him to death. So verse 29, what's Jesus going to say? They call him out by what authority? Verse 29, here's the turn. He doesn't immediately answer them. He turns and asks them a question. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. So I will answer your question, Jesus says, but I won't be trolled here. I have a question for you first. 
He knows what they're up to. He does this all the time, doesn't he? People come up with a question, and Jesus sees the agenda behind this question, and he goes right at his own agenda for these people. And his agenda is, one, to highlight these men's um, uh, unbelief, hypocrisy, and their cowardice, as as we're going to see, in front of the people they're supposed to be leading. So he turns the question on them. And actually, unlike their question, which is not honest, I think Jesus' question is an honest one. He really is asking them an honest question. He wants them to consider what he's about to ask. It's not just a cowardly sidestep to say no comment. In fact, what I realized, you know, Jesus is not afraid at this point. In this interaction, Jesus isn't afraid to just say to them right there in front of everybody by my own authority. He's not afraid to die. He's not afraid. In fact, just in a few days, when he finally is arrested, he's going to stand before all these men, the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the council, and the chief priest is going to ask him, uh, are you, let me find it here again. Boy, now, Jan, you got me on the run. I got to make sure I get every single word here right, which is very good. They're going to ask, are you the Christ, the son of God, the uh, son of the blessed? And he's going to answer them directly and say, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. He's going to look right at them and and say unequivocally, yeah, remember Daniel 7 when there was this prophecy that one day the Son of Man, this this, uh, person uh, on behalf of God is going to come with authority and power and dominion and make all things right and exercise that authority uh, on earth. He says, uh, you will see very soon the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. But this moment's not the time. So Jesus isn't afraid and sidestepping. He's going to go to the cross exactly when he intends to go to the cross. But right here, he has an agenda. And his question, I think, is honest. And so he says, answer me this, verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. I like that twice he says, answer answer me. They come up, they bust in, interrupt him. And twice he says, I got a question for you. Answer me. He acts with authority. But this is weird. So they ask him, hey, by what authority do you do these things? And he says, hold on a second. Let me ask you a question about John. Remember that guy years back? All of a sudden, this huge ministry rose up out in the, in the desert, and all these people, even from Jerusalem, were going out to him by the River Jordan. And he was preaching that after centuries of silence and God not sending any more prophets to Israel, suddenly now he claimed to be someone sent from God and said, Messiah is about to arrive. Get ready. And the way to get ready is to acknowledge even even as Jews, that just because you're Jews, that doesn't automatically make you in with the the Messiah, but that just like everybody else, you need to acknowledge your sin, repent of it, and turn to him as your savior. So come on out. And as a picture of that, he was baptizing people in the river. Jesus asked them a question about John. And he says, let me ask you a question first. Was his ministry, was the baptism of John, that whole thing he was doing out there? I want to know what you thought of that. Was that from heaven? In other words, was was he doing that by God's authority or from man? Was that just a plan he had? Was he he an imposter? Was he a shark? Was that his own ministry? That wasn't from God. He was acting on his own. What do you guys think? He asks. I think the reason Jesus asks them that question and it's not a dodge is because I think that God had already given them an answer to the question they just asked Jesus through John and his ministry. If you think John the Baptist um, did two things. One, he clearly presented himself as having God's authority. He clearly um, presented himself as, as doing what he was doing because it was fulfilling what God had said through Isaiah and the prophets would happen. He realized God has raised me up and called me to prepare the way for the one coming after me. So John himself said things like, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm worthy, unworthy to untie. So I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So not only then did John claim that his ministry was by God's authority, but then in his ministry, he claimed that the one coming after him was clearly coming with the authority of God. In fact, much more authority than John had. John's was borrowed, but this one coming after is, is I'm unworthy to untie his sandals, John had said. 
And then one day, Jesus himself had come out to the Jordan where John was baptizing, you remember? And he came to John and asked to be baptized. And John understood who this was and said, no, I shouldn't baptize you. But Jesus says, no, this is God's plan. I want you to baptize me. So John obediently does and brings him out of the water and God shows up. God, a miraculous, a voice from heaven and some sort of manifestation of the Holy Spirit that, that, that the gospels say appeared like a, a dove coming down, resting on Jesus. So something identifying this one as different than everyone else who has been baptized by John. And the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So this very public identification of Jesus uniquely being God's beloved son. And then John, after the fact, continues to say, I agree with that. So even after that, Jesus is walking by at one point in the gospel of John and John points him out to others and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So Jesus is asking about John's ministry because it clearly claimed to be from God and clearly claimed that Jesus was from God. And, he, and neither of these things were secrets to the Sanhedrin, these men who would come up to Jesus right here. It's not like, well, news of that hadn't gotten to Jerusalem yet. That just happened out in the outlying places. No, even in the Gospel of John, while John the Baptist was doing these things, this, this, this ministry, um, John's Gospel tells us that priests and Levites so um, come down from Jerusalem as a delegation to investigate this baptism ministry of John and what's going on here. And Mark, goes to, and Mark goes to great lengths to show us that after the, the baptism of Jesus by John, that the ministry and the teaching of Jesus for three years is just filled with these signs and wonders and things that attest to or corroborate Jesus' claim and John's claim about Jesus. So not only does John's baptism sort of is a short way of asking, do you recognize God's salvation work when it comes? Did you recognize it in John? Did you recognize it in the life of the one that John pointed forward to and said, this is who I've come to prepare the way for? I think Jesus is really graciously driving them to, the, to an answer to their question and, and really saying, guys, connect the dots. Think back again to what John was doing. Think of what the people said about Jesus. Think about what has happened every town that Jesus has gone all the way up here to Jerusalem. Think about these things. Do you really think this is just from man or is this from heaven? I think Jesus also knows that he puts them on the horns of a dilemma here because he already knows what answer they're making, they're giving in their hearts. So what do they do? They huddle up. They say, okay, well, hold on we got to talk about this. I don't know. They get together and, and they, you know, they pull their robes up or whatever. And they're like, okay, what are we going to do about, about this? They, all of a sudden, they're in a really awkward spot. Verse 31, here's the one hand. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe in him? Wait, pause for a second. Notice the one thing that they don't say when they huddle up. They don't huddle up and they go, are we wrong? <laughs> they don't pull back and say, Let, let's think about this question just one more time, right, guys? Do we think that John's ministry was from God? They don't even go there. All they do is damage control. They just go and say, okay, if we, either way we answer, this looks bad for them. So number one, they say, if we lie and say from heaven that we don't believe, but would keep all the people happy with us, then we, we simultaneously admit that we are in open rebellion against God. If we acknowledge and keep the people happy and say, John, that was, that was God's plan right there then the, the big uh-oh is then why weren't you baptized by him? <laughs> why did you refuse to acknowledge that you needed to be prepared for Messiah coming? And why are you now stand, standing in open opposition to the one that John said he came to prepare the way for? So they did understand something true here. They understood that if Jesus does act with God's authority, then that demands obedience and belief, right? Right? That's important. That, that's the central question of the gospel. If Jesus really is God, and he really is the author and creator of all things, like I said at the beginning, then that gives him the right for his word to interrogate us. And where we differ from him, we yield, not the other way around. 
And they understand that if they ascribe authority to Jesus from God, then the only next step that's appropriate is to believe in him and yield. And they're unwilling to do that. So they say, well, we can't answer that from heaven. Verse 32 is the other hand. But shall we say from man, which is what they really believe, what they're at least really holding to, <laughs> they're, 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 they're sticking with their answer. Shall we say that? We don't get the, the second part of their answer, but Mark tells us why they weren't willing. He says they were afraid of the people for the people all held that John really was a prophet. Which by the way, that's the cowardly piece of it. Not only are they unbelieving and hypocrites, but they're actually cowards. I mean, think about this. These men are, are tasked with overseeing and being the protectors of, of Israel and, and the covenant, keeping the people faithful, guarding against enemy. If they really in their hearts believe that John and Jesus aren't from God and that they're imposters and potentially trying to lead Israel off after a lie, they should immediately right here say from man, right? And here they are in the temple on their home turf and they're unwilling to even be shepherds or cowards. So they come up with a third option, which is still embarrassing for them, is they dodge, verse 33. So they answer Jesus, we don't know. The experts in the law and the scriptures and the Old Testament, the ones who knew what the prophets said and who they were looking for to come, they had to acknowledge publicly the only way out of this was to say, we don't, we don't know, we can't tell. Even though all the crowds are saying, many of the crowds are saying, I think we can. So Jesus exposes their insincerity in their question, that they're playing games with Jesus and, and they're just strategizing and they're against him uh, and also that they're cowards. And so they say, we don't know. And Jesus then upholds his end of the bargain. He said, I'd answer you if you answer my question, but since you won't, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so he didn't lie. They refused. And, and at this point, G the conversation is over. I would love to know how, what happened right next, I've thought. Because it, does, it, does, it just moves on to another scene where Jesus is confronting them again. But, but at, at some point, they must have just had to walk away, right? We don't know. Carry on. <laughs> you know, let them keep going what he's doing. So here's the two points. Two observations about re rejecting Jesus' authority that I think we see. Number one is this, and, and it tells us something that's really important about understanding of what, what is the root problem of sin. So this is number one. The root problem of their rejecting Jesus' authority isn't ignorance, it's rebellion. Ignorance is part of it. Being spiritually blind and and not seeing that Jesus is who he claims to be is part of it, but it's not the root of it. Their unbelief here, it's really clear. It's not for lack of evidence. That's what the John question really highlights, right? They were aware of so much, not just the Old Testament scriptures that they were experts in, but then aware of so much evidence that attested to the identity of Jesus, and yet they're still unwilling to submit. I mean, some people might I mean, often say, well, you know, if I just had more evidence, then of course I would obey. But here we at least have to answer, well, that's not a given, Right? You just marshal all the evidence and then I can do nothing but yield, right? Here's these men and they have tons of evidence, but they are still unwilling to yield. Mark Dever, who's a preacher I love, was preaching on this and he said, they're not rejecting Jesus because they're dumb, but because they're bad, <laughs> right? And that's, that's true. It's not for lack of evidence. Um, it's for lack of desire and willingness, willingness, um, they had the testimony of God himself from the scriptures. They had the testimony of John. They had the life and ministry and the testimony about Jesus for three years now of ministry. They had probably seen and witnessed some of Jesus' authoritative teaching uh, and, 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 and works. Um, and, and nevertheless, they are, they are unwilling uh, to yield. Um, just a side note, another pastor, uh, Tim Keller, who, who I love, um, a few years back at a conference, I, I read an article about this. He was asked at a conference, um, what did he think was one of the, or were the, the, the 
primary uh, thing, obstacles for revival in the church in America these days? What, what, were the, what was an ob- obstacle for churches having a fresh vision of God's holiness and a deep repentance and a, an evangelistic zeal and, and, and aliveness? What, what did he see was the, the biggest obstacle? And right out of the gate, he says fornication. And all these people were like, first of all, it's kind of an old-timey word, fornication. And, and as he explained, he said this. He pointed to statistics. He said, you know, statistically these days, the, the numbers of, of men and women, both in the church and outside of the church, that, that live in sexual immorality or sexual freedom, just sort of go along with the culture, are staggering percentages. Um, and, and, and then he cited, he said, there's a college pastor that he worked with. He said, I don't know if I can condone this approach, but often when college students would come home, from on break from being at, at state school or you know secular college, and they'd come home and they'd he'd get together one on one with them, and and they'd start saying, boy, you know, I'm really doubting my faith, and and this this problem and the problem of evil, and my biology professor said this, that he would often say, what's her name, <laughs> or what's his name, and they'd go, what do you mean? Well, who are you sleeping with? It's a little bit not gentle, <laughs> right? But but what he would get at, and he said, amazingly, how many times a student would look at him and say, how did you know? And it was amazing when, when there began to be boundaries crossed and desire to, to I want to do what I want to do sexually. And I know Jesus says some things about that, about what God created sex for, um, that how much easier it is to want to, to find a reason to discredit um, and dismiss Jesus' authority because it doesn't align with what I want to do. Now, that is not always the case. And Keller was clear to say, listen, lots of people actually come home from college with really good, important intellectual questions. And so that, yeah, so he's trying not to be dismissive. But I think there's some truth there, don't you think? That there is something in us, that there is a rebellious heart toward God that's our part of our sin nature that actually contributes to our spiritual blindness and our ignorance. In other words, bad hearts often uh, create bad eyes and we don't see things that we don't want to see about Jesus. I think this, this is true biblically. A couple places I want to point to. Number one, in John 3, Jesus was talking about um, the need that everyone has to be born again. And he says this to Nicodemus, who was also a Pharisee, who was questioning Jesus and what he was saying, the things he was saying. And they have this private conversation at night. Nicodemus comes to where Jesus is. And, and as they're talking, and Jesus is saying, unless someone's born again, they will not be part of God's kingdom. And Jesus puts his finger on what is the problem with people being born again? Why, why, what, what's the problem standing in the way of that? John 3, 19. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his work should be exposed. There's a a willful sort of blindness spiritually that our sin nature uh, inclines us toward. We see light and because our hearts are evil and there are things that we want to do and not want God to mess with that we actually resist the light. We look away at La Mirada last week. I asked the question, I said, how can you blame someone for being blind? How can you blame someone for not seeing something? And in the first service, Patrick Klanzek, who I love, it was a rhetorical question, but he said, when they close their eyes, (laughs) <laughs> and that's right, right? That's what Jesus is saying. There is an element to our spiritual blindness that, is, that we're, we're culpable for, that we're guilty of. That the light, here's Jesus, the light comes to the world, and, we, and we, we actually don't want our works to be exposed by that light, and so we, we reject it. So there's ignorance, but underneath the ignorance is rebellion. Does that make sense? Paul in Romans 1 says it's not just specifically with Jesus, but our sin nature leads all men to do this, with God in creation. In Romans 1, he says, here's why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is what God's angry about with all mankind. He says, uh, the wrath of God is revealed against, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here's the truth, and they suppress it. They hide it. They refuse it. They, they don't look at it. 
They do it by their unrighteousness. There's a connection. Rebellion leads to suppressing the truth. He says, what can be known about God is plain. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. There is lots of evidence, Paul is saying, to at minimum acknowledge an eternal and infinitely powerful God and designer and creator. And he says, by our unrighteousness, we, we suppress that truth. And he goes on, he says, so they're without excuse. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's saying unrighteousness leads us to suppress truth and think um, futile thinking, thinking that's dead end thinking and darkens our hearts. Our foolishness darkens our hearts. And I think that's what we see going on here with these leaders. And that's what, we, that's what happens with every one of us in our sin. Our sin... <laughs> messes with our ability to see clearly and to acknowledge truth and, and leads us, even after trusting Christ, to want to suppress truth, the truth or play games with the truth in such a way that we don't have to yield to something that we don't want to. I think that the thing that was keeping these leaders from uh, affirming Jesus' authority was uh, the same principle that kept the rich young guy from following Jesus, right? It's that camel fitting through the eye of the needle principle, he said, right? Rich people, really hard to get them into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is submitting and yielding to Jesus' authority. And he said, that's like getting a camel through an eye of a needle. Well, what is it that's hard to, to, to get through the eye of a needle for us? Our idols, right? Anything that we want to say, we want to have Jesus' authority and this. You can't have it both ways. And for these men, we know in the gospels, things like this, that Mark 12 says, the scribes loved walking around in long robes, and being greeted in the marketplaces and having the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Meanwhile, they devoured widows' houses. They got rich off of the poor and for a pretense make long prayers. These are the sorts of men that are dealing with Jesus in this scene right here. And you can see there is something here they're unwilling to let go of that they know if Jesus is, is his authority is from God, then it can't be this way. And just like the rich man who had many possessions and went away sad, these men go away angry. They were so committed to holding their position, I think, of power and honor and control that they were just explaining away what was right in front of them. The light of the world is here, and it was exposing their darkness, and they were saying, no thank you. Is it possible that you are rejecting Jesus' authority in your heart not because of a lack of evidence, um, but because an unwillingness. You just flat out, there are things that you understand that Jesus um, forbids that you find precious or things that Jesus demands and calls you to that you're not ready to give. Is your no thanks in the face of, of evidence? Um, my, my warning would be don't harden your heart toward that if that's the case. As Christians, I'm just going to say again, you know, we, we fight this all our lives. Uh, I think we should sing the hymn, All to Jesus I Surrender. Um, it's a prayer of consecration. When we sing it, if we're singing it correctly, I think, we are acknowledging it's not true of me, but that's what I want. My heart wants to be undivided in loyalty and submission to Jesus. But as Christians, we know every day it's some to Jesus I surrender, some to him I reluctantly give, some to him I, I sort of um, rope off and say, you, might, you may not go here and speak to this. And so again, maybe this morning it's praying and saying, Lord, please help me to see, first of all, the ways where I say, Lord, Lord, but I actually don't do what you say. And help me to yield to those things. Help me to not continue like this, playing games with your authority and playing word games with your commands so that it aligns with what I want to do. Second point, and this is why the, the warning is, is so important, uh, is there's a point where Jesus doesn't have anything more to say. I think we see in this scene. Now, he actually, in the next few chapters, we're going to see he's going to have more interactions uh, with these leaders. And so this isn't the absolute last encounter, but there's something going on here when, when they say, when they're dodging and playing games and they won't answer him honestly about this question about John and all of the revelation that they have been presented with and they're, they're refusing to, to deal honestly with all that, where I think Jesus really is saying, I, I'm not going to answer your question because I don't have anything else to add. 
There's nothing else I could add that's going to tip the scales because, again, this isn't about evidence. It's about rebellion. I got nothing else to add. And that's a sobering truth. In fact, I think that's the central point of the whole book of Hebrews, which we studied about a year and a half ago here, preached through at Grace. But let me just boil it down in one minute. The book of Hebrews is basically saying to Jews who had initially trusted Christ, but were tempted by outside pressure and inside fear to leave Jesus, to to drift away from Jesus. And what the author of Hebrews basically says is, listen, God doesn't have anything else to say beyond Jesus. What Jesus, what he has said through Jesus now, dying for our sin, rising from the grave, becoming our great high priest, reconciling us to God, bringing us to heaven to be with God forever. What God has said through Jesus is the final word And so then in chapter two, it says, so you must pay much closer attention to what you've heard lest you drift from it. And then in chapter three, the the book says, um, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then three times the author pleads, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Why? Why? Why would he say in this moment where, he, where people are listening to this letter being read, if you hear his voice right now, if you hear it right now this morning, don't harden your heart. Why? Because as you harden your heart, there's no guarantee. Jesus has nothing else to say beyond this. So if you harden your heart to this, Lord have mercy. So as we close, I, I, I want to, to finish with this, is, is, is connecting the dots with this again uh, and the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus does at the cross. The, as I was studying this a couple of weeks ago, this little scene here, I was struck by how many parallels there are to Joseph's story all the way back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. I think intentionally, God takes Joseph's life through some things that in many ways is a shadow of what Jesus is going to do in a much greater sense. But just think for a minute. Joseph was this uh, young brother. He had 11 brothers. They were all older. uh, Joseph had a couple of dreams that God gave him that one day they were going to be in a position under his authority. And he talked about that. And they were jealous. And they said, we hate him. Let's get rid of him. And at first they were going to kill him. But then out of fear for their, what their dad might do. They, they sell him to slave traders and they, and they pass off this lie to the dad to say he was killed. But they basically hand Joseph over, um, uh, deliver him over to, to slavery. And they take him down to Egypt and he suffers and he suffers and he's thrown into prison for years where he languishes in prison. But finally through all this suffering, God exalts Joseph to this place of authority, second in command to Pharaoh, so that he might then have the authority uh, and the ability to prepare to save thousands and thousands of people from a famine. And when that famine finally makes its way all the way up and touches his family outside of Egypt and they come looking for food down in Egypt, he gets to encounter his brothers again. You remember that? And here they are, these brothers that sold him. They don't even recognize him anymore. And they're standing there asking for food. And Joseph has mercy on them. God graciously gives Joseph the the ability to see there's a bigger picture going on here. And this is how Joseph puts it. He looks his brothers in the eye. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. He doesn't deny it. He says, you meant this to destroy me. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And because of what Joseph suffered, he was able to save not just many from a famine, but the the very brothers who sold him into slavery. You see the parallels, right? Here's Jesus. He's come to his own people. And here he is in the temple in his father's house with the leaders of his people, his brothers. And here they are conspiring for a way to sell him over, to, to deliver him over to Rome and have him killed and eliminated. And they absolutely mean it for evil. But God means it for good. Jesus has already said this must happen. Jesus is in control. And because of the suffering that they are going to hand him over to suffer, Jesus, Philippians 2 says, is now exalted to the right hand of God in authority over all things. And one day every knee is going to bow before him. And he has the ability to now offer the bread of life, forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all. And amazingly enough, even to these men, 
at Pentecost in Acts, some of these same men are going to hear again an invitation to trust in Jesus and to repent and believe and be baptized and to be saved. That's the gospel. That's the sovereign grace that our catechism question talked about, that it's a, it's a hard one to wrap our minds around, but God didn't need to save any, and he mercifully, in his sovereign grace, saves. Even scoundrels like this. Paul was one of these kind of guys. We don't know what, if Paul was ever a member of the Sanhedrin or not. We don't have indication, but he was a Pharisee. He was an important one. In the book of Acts, he has enough authority that he's rounding up Christians and putting them in jail and, and, and giving him thumbs up as Stephen and, and others are actually martyred for their faith. And God saves him. I want to finish with this. These are Paul's words. These, this is the testimony of a man just like these men who received grace even after rejecting Jesus. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17 says, I thank him who's, been, who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. He appointed me to his service, even though formerly I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and it deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Isn't that great? To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a warning and there's an encouragement here. The warning in this is, again, to not presume on his grace. Paul turned. He stopped kicking against the goads, against the evidence, and he turned. Many of these men, we don't have any indication. In fact, in Acts, we see them continuing to, to, to treat the apostles and, and Christ's followers just like they're treating Jesus here. And so don't make that same mistake. But this morning even, humble yourself. You can pray and say, Lord, I, I give up. I, I recognize. I see that Jesus has authority. Much of me does not want to yield to it, but I, I, I want to trust you and to pray and ask him to help. Let's take a moment to pray quietly before we, we sing one last hymn together, but I'm not sure what you need to talk to the Lord about in light of this, but take a minute. Say, God, what, what did I need to hear and how do I need to respond in light of of what we're, we're talking about here. Let's pray. Well, Lord, uh, today I pray that, that everyone here through your word has, has heard um, and wouldn't harden their heart. Jesus, we thank you that you uh, have even more patience and grace than Joseph did. And, uh, and you're so willing and eager to forgive us even as we have rejected you. Um, from birth. Lord, we thank you um, for new life. We thank you for your Spirit's help. God, I pray that you'd help us to, to yield to you, Lord, again this week even, that you would be helping us to ask that over every area of our life. Is, is, are we acting as Jesus is Lord over this? And, uh, and where we're not, Lord, that you would um, soften our heart, soften our grip on the things that, that make us reluctant, rebellious, and We'd yield gladly. Help, help us understand, Jesus, too, that you weren't lying when you said that if we actually seek to lose our life and give you authority, that we'll gain it. And it won't be a loss for us that, that what feels like a loss of precious things is actually a gain. I pray you'd help us to, to believe that and then show it. Show us the truth of that uh, in our experience as well. Uh, Jesus, we acknowledge you uh, as King uh, and Lord, and we praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen.